This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Intelligence Agency is facing a tough prospect. Employees who want to work remotely, but DIA is a spy agency that deals in classified information. Faced with increasing attrition among its support staff, DIA is now turning to more flexible workplace options. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday brings us more. And Justin, why has this issue of remote work become such a big challenge? Yeah, well, just like everyone else, uh, the pandemic changed expectations for DIA employees. And, you know, during the height of the pandemic, its headquarters was reduced to operating at about 40 percent capacity to allow for social distancing. But now they've kind of come back. Uh, But, you know, you're seeing a lot of employees who face opportunities elsewhere where they do allow remote work. And so DIA Chief of Staff John Kirchover says they're facing some increased attrition among the support side or what he calls the enabling side of DIA, HR, finance, contract support, things like that. Kirchover spoke at a recent event hosted by the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. So if you take a contracting officer or a human resources specialist, They can go anywhere in the federal government. And most of our uh, non-IC partners are allowing those folks to work from home full time. We are in those areas seeing increased attrition. I just hope it doesn't become a bow wave. And I think we need to work toward some home solutions for folks that work on that enabling side. Otherwise, I just don't think we can compete for talent and our retention will struggle. And this issue is not just unique to DIA, right? CIA and everybody else in the intelligence community. Yeah, it's, it, you don't always get a lot of uh, details about what's going on in the intelligence community, but I think it's fair to say that all of those big agencies are facing similar issues. Uh, you know, this is one of the first specific examples, though, I've heard of a, an intelligence agency saying, yeah, we're seeing employees leaving because they want to be able to work uh, from home or work remotely. Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines has uh, said in the past that the IC has to find ways to make workplaces more flexible and, and appealing to compete for talent. So it's definitely an issue across the community. And what solutions is the DIA looking at to give people more flexibility and yet not violate classified yada yada? Right. Well, so, you know, the support staff uh, might be able to do more unclassified work. They can find ways to to make that more unclassified. But even for classified folks, analysts who have to work with classified materials and have to work out of skiffs, Kirchhofer says DIA could use this, uh, use shared skiffs, uh, have folks maybe work from San, a San Diego skiff when even though their headquarters are over here on the East Coast. Uh, it's something industry has been advocating for. Here's Kirchhofer talking about that a little bit more. That's a massive cultural shift, though, for supervisors at all levels. Kind of old school concept of I want to see someone come in, mm-hmm. click the time clock, and I want to know when they leave. You've got to put some trust in folks that they're, in fact, going to be gainfully employed and work for eight hours a day or, or whatever their time schedule is. But I don't need everybody sitting around me because I have this amazing connectivity. And frankly, there are skiffs from San Diego to Seattle to Boston to Miami with a fair number overseas if you really need it. So I would like to see us give those types of opportunities to our employees. And what about the DIA making investments in its IT backbone? That has been helping some of this, right? Yeah, they're looking to update a system that's really been around since the 1960s. And I'm sure other agencies are are dealing with this. But at DIA, Kirchhofer says they've really chronically underinvested in their HR systems. Uh, And he said the agency is now working with Pentagon leadership to boost both its HR capacity 
and to create a more attractive HR career track at the agency. That includes updating the IT system that works on the back end. Uh, and they're looking to update what is still largely a paper-based system. Here's Kirchhofer again. We are still largely analog, paper-based, and, and that's a lost opportunity. I mean, we, we know, you know, for 60 years we've been able to do this in paper, and we do just fine. But the reality is we can't take advantage of anything that big data brings to, to the fight. Machine learning, how we might use those, those types of tools to tell us more about where we have gaps in talent in our workforce. So we're going to modernize our business systems the same way we're going to modernize our mission systems. And just getting back to the issue of SCIF versus non-SCIF, the support staff that he's talking about, IT maybe, certainly procurement, HR, they are not in SCIF. So it looks like maybe the DIA and other intelligence agencies, Justin, are working towards almost a bifurcation of the people that have to be in the SCIF at Langley, at wherever DIA is, at Belvoir, etc., but everyone else doing procurement, for example, really doesn't need to be in the secret cone of silence. That's right. I, I think uh, you're seeing agencies start to realize that maybe that type of contracting data doesn't need to be as classified as it's been in the past. And you've you've heard this issue come up a lot over classification of data, just stamp it classified to be safe. Well, Actually, that creates issues when you're trying to introduce more flexible workplace options and and share information. So you're definitely seeing, uh, I think the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency has been elevated as a model for making things unclassified where you can and not just saying we're making everything top secret because we're a spy agency. I just wonder why no one has explored the idea of heavy-duty encryption for the traffic that goes between, say, a remote location or a home and the agency, and then it's decrypted at each end. I think the worry there is what happens in the home. The computer itself could be stolen or something like that, and then you've got that issue. There's also full disk encryption, but nobody's talking about that, are they? I haven't heard that. I know some IC leaders do have some of those really uh, juiced-up systems at their houses, but they might not pay for everyone to have something similar going forward. does get expensive. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. 
And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, Um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of 
coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But 
I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time.